Welcome to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. Today's episode is less scripted, less polished, rustic, if you will. Grab a chair and your drink of choice and get ready to hear all about World War I outside the Western Front. It's unfiltered soldiers. Hello and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I remain your host, James Hauser, and today should be Unfiltered Soldiers episode number four, Beyond the Western Front. It's been a while since we've done one of these, hasn't it? It's been about, what, four months, give or take? Three and a half? Something like that. But anyway, this is the Unfiltered Soldiers episode that you guys requested. The World War One episode. I had a poll on my website, I advertised it on social media, where you could pick a Civil War, American Civil War, Napoleon, World War One, or a surprise short round. And y'all picked, surprising me, surprise me, you picked World War One. I'm kind of astonished. I had I had plans for the other ones, but I did not expect y'all to pick this one. But I'm happy to do it. I'm absolutely happy to do it. I can I'm thrilled to talk about World War 1 in case you don't know that from ever talking to me or listening to my podcast. But yeah, I had plans for the other episodes, but I did not have a plan for this one. But don't worry, I made one. Uh, for those of you that didn't get the episode you wanted, they'll come, I promise. Maybe a season two thing. This is my last planned Unfiltered Soldiers episode of the season. Season's going to wrap up in May. So for those of you who might be new listeners who don't know what an Unfiltered Soldiers episode is, just because I haven't done one of these in a hot minute, uh, these are unstructured, no music, minimal editing. All I have is an outline I'm following, a general outline, a beer, and a couple of books at hand. The beer is a Sweetwater 420 Imperial IPA. I do love my Imperial IPAs, if you haven't figured that out yet. Uh, it's actually really tasty. I really like this one. This is out of Atlanta, Georgia. It's a very good brewery. Um, eventually, I plan to displace up to Wisconsin in the next uh, couple, about the next 10 months or so. And Wisconsin's a great beer state, so I'm going to do a lot of beer reviews for Unfiltered Soldiers when I get up there. The books I have are just a couple of general references, just for me to Makes look at some notes I made. Uh, John Keegan, The First World War, a decent general history of the conflict. Uh, I get disappointed sometimes because I read a lot of First World War histories. I've read most of the general histories, and they always have something they miss. They always have some front or some battle they completely leave out. Uh, Keegan does an okay job. For my take, the best one that touches every single portion of the war is H.W. Strawn's The First World War. It's the best general history if you want a good, broad overlook at that conflict. And I also have uh, Trevor Dupuy, 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 something, uh, the Encyclopedia, Harper Encyclopedia of Military History, which I use, again, as a general reference for dates and numbers and stuff. So um, this is super handy. It's not up to date. It was, I think, the last edition came out in the 1990s, like 1991, 92. But, you know, it doesn't have the latest and greatest scholarship. Still a good work. Okay. So that's what I have sitting in front of me right now. So this is Unfiltered Soldiers is just me talking about a topic I feel like talking about. Or in this case, a one of several topics that y'all picked. And I'm glad that y'all picked this because I love to talk about this. It's something when I get something that I want to get off my chest, just get it out there. And uh, this is also a method to get content to you guys faster because I don't have to do a bunch of footnoted research, which I do for everything else. Give me a breathing space so I can have time in my busy schedule to get that high quality uh, standard content out to you faster. So like I said, 
Today's topic was chosen by the listeners. The option was World War I unfiltered soldiers in general. I didn't specify a topic. But so I had several option ways I could go with this. I said several ways I could spend this episode. I could talk about many different things when it comes to World War I. But you know me. What's the what's the podcast called? Unknown Soldiers Podcast. So I figured the best thing to do is to talk about the stuff people are unfamiliar with. Because when we think of World War I, what do we think of? What's the first thing that pops into your head? It's almost certainly trench warfare on the Western Front in France or Belgium. And you're probably thinking of a British soldier and a German soldier, if, if, if you're thinking of anybody. Maybe some Americans, maybe some French if we're lucky. But this is, the, this is the image that culture and media have given us. The Western Front, trench warfare, rigid, static, defensive warfare where thousands of men charge over the no man's land and gets massacred by machine guns. Uh, I'm going to correct one real quick thing before we get any farther. Machine guns were not the big killer on the Western Front. They weren't the big killer in either world war. Almost 70% of combat casualties in, the, in both world wars were caused by artillery, the king of battle. Infantry is often called the queen of battle. And ask yourself what the king does to the queen, and that's, what you, that's the world wars. <laughs> like, artillery is causing most of the casualties. The advances weren't in machine guns. Machine guns are overrated as weapons because they're more visible to the soldiers charging across the field. But machine guns didn't cause most of the deaths. Artillery did. But, okay, moving on. So when we think of World War I, we think of this static Western Front, this trench warfare with certain protagonists, the British, the French, the Americans, and the Germans. But guys, the Western Front wasn't the whole war. It was only one part of it. It was ultimately the most important part, I think. It was, it was the front where the war was won or lost in the end. But it definitely wasn't the only part of it, and it definitely wasn't the only critical part of it. And finally, there's another just common perception of the war that it was, World War I was, what do we think World War I was? It was useless, right? It was a useless, tragic waste of life that accomplished nothing. Depends on who you ask. Really depends on who you ask. Because our accounts in America of World War I are heavily focused on the British perspective. Why? Because they wrote in English. They wrote in English and we read it in English. We didn't always, we might have read the Germans sometimes, we might have read the French sometimes, but no one was reading the Bulgarian works on World War I. No one was reading really many of the Russian works on World War I, or the Hungarian, or the Turkish, or the Serbian, or the Greek, or any of those. They were reading the English language sources. So they have a, that skews their look at the war. So I'm trying to unskew that today. World War I was a world war. It took place around the globe and in many places that were not the Western Front. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I did an episode about Admiral von Spee's death ride, this naval campaign in 1914. This was, it was between the British and the Germans, the usual protagonists, uh, but it took place in the Pacific and off the coast of South America. And this shows how the war was taking place around the world, not just in one little corner of Europe. One very bloody, very terrible corner of Europe where millions of people were killed. It was one of the worst combat experiences in the history of humanity, bar none. One of the top five, maybe top three. But that wasn't the whole war. And it wasn't the only thing that mattered. So, 
Let's meet some unknown soldiers all around the world of World War I. This is going to be a reconnaissance. I'm not going to go too deep into any one campaign. I'm just trying to show you guys how big this war was, how many countries were involved, countries people don't even think about, and what their experiences were like in a general sense. And that the combat, even the fighting, was didn't look like trench warfare everywhere. It could look very different depending on where you were sitting. World War I did not always look like, say, the movie 1917 or the novel All Quiet on the Western Front or anything you've seen. But what did it look like in Italy? What did it look like in Serbia? What did it look like in Ukraine or Syria or Iraq or Armenia? Because these were all battlefronts. Shoot, what did it look like in Tanzania and Cameroon, which were also war fronts? It's crazy. This this is a world war. I can't emphasize enough. This is a world war. It happened all over the world. And we're going to find out why today. So today, we're going to talk about World War I outside the Western Front. This means, sort of, I'm going to have to start with how the war began, what, what started and prompted the war, because that started in one of the most forgotten front in what became one of the most forgotten fronts of the war, the Balkans and Southeastern Europe. This means especially talking about the country that I think was one of the most important but most forgotten factors in the Great War. One of the major powers that people always forget about. They always forget about this country. No one ever hears about the war from this country's perspective. They are completely lost in the narrative, and that is Austria-Hungary. Then I'm going to start as far away from Europe as I can get and slowly move closer to the Western Front. That means we're going to start in the Pacific. We're going to start in America. We're going to go to Africa, China, the Middle East, the Caucasus, the Balkans, the Eastern Front, Italy, Romania. And I'll finally touch on what happened on the Western Front, especially some of the unknown soldiers that fought there. But I'm saving the trench warfare discussion. I'm not going to talk deeply about the problems of trench warfare today. That was the other big option I looked at. It was either talk about the World War or talk about the misconceptions about trench warfare. I decided to put that one off until maybe a later Unfiltered Soldiers episode. But I'll get to that eventually. Depends on how long this podcast runs. It's running pretty good so far, I think. So finally, we're going to look at the forgotten aftermath of the war. How people remembered it in different ways based on what experience their country had in a conflict. Britain, France, Germany, United States, especially today, tend to remember World War I as the waste of life, the epic futility, a big tragedy that was really nobody's fault. Well, that's not how most other countries saw it. Most other countries, a lot of the countries, felt they got something positive out of the war. I mean, a lot of countries came into existence because of the war. People have their independence days on November 11th, 1918, the day the guns went silent. And I've mentioned that some a little bit and after the armistice, but what I'm talking about is how this is seen and how we can look at this World War I one way, but that isn't the way it was seen beyond the Western Front. All of this is a brief overview. Any one of these stories, any one of these fronts has more than enough material for multiple episodes. I'm only touching on them today to show you guys just how complicated, global, and diverse the First World War really was. So let's look at how the conflict went beyond the Western Front. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. The podcast is PG-13. The language is clean. The content is not. 
Next, all my sources, you've heard them. I have my two books here. If I source anything else, I'll let you know. I'm not going to have a source post for this one. This is Unfiltered Soldiers. I'm speaking off the cuff. I'm speaking mostly from what I know and a couple dates here and there taken from these books. And finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. These were real stories with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's start with a very simple question, right? Why did World War I begin? World War II is an easy answer. Everyone knows that. Adolf Hitler was a power-hungry weirdo who believed in a twisted goulash of dark romanticism and cuckoo racial conspiracy theories. But World War I, ooh, that's, that's tougher. First World War is tougher. Hard to explain that one. I'm not going to give you a full century European history right now. That would be an entirely different episode. Maybe we'll, t- we'll call it, I don't know, the Crimean War series coming next week. <laughs> but uh, so why do people think this war happened, first of all? Well, the big reason I keep hearing, the big reason I always hear people say, because they read it in their high school history textbook, because of alliances. Alliances don't explain the outbreak of World War I. I'll tell you why in just a bit, but alliances alone do not explain it. Nationalism, militarism, isms, a bunch of isms. The isms don't explain it. Some people say it was caused basically by accident, that, uh, oops, didn't mean to, now we're in a global war. No, every country involved made a conscious decision to enter the war. This wasn't something they were dragged into outside of their own choices. They made a choice and they entered the war. So why did World War I begin? I, th- there's, there's still a bunch of theorizing on this. I'm not offering a definitive answer. There's still a bunch of books and interpretations coming out to this day blaming this country or that country. Or, well, if so-and-so had done this, the World War wouldn't have happened. Yeah, there's like a hundred things you could say that for. So, I mean, this is not a settled question. I'm telling you, this is my opinion. My opinion, why World War I started. The reason most wars start, the cause of most wars, fear and ambition, miscalculation, insecurity, underestimation of the dangers, but mainly, mainly, mainly fear and insecurity. Fear. Fear. Most people don't go to war because they feel strong, but because they feel weak and vulnerable. Seriously. I mean, you can look at any war and you'll find some underlying current of weakness in the whatever country starts the war. They felt like they were losing something. They felt like they were about to be attacked. They felt like if they didn't go to war, it was their only choice and it would be too late. Like a cornered animal. I'm not comparing any one country to an animal. I'm saying that's it's just that instinct, the, the feeling of being trapped and that war is your only way out. People don't start wars because, look, look at how awesome I am. I'm going to start a war. They start wars like, if we don't do something now, it's going to be too late. That's how they think. That's how people think. People act out of fear. Every country made a conscious decision to go to war because they looked at the other options and said, well, if we stay out of this, we're going to be in trouble. Or there was an ambition involved, an ambition that their own people were often pushing for. A lot of countries... A lot of political leaders and military leaders did not want to go into World War I, but they looked at the options and said, well, we really don't have a better option. Staying out is going to be worse than going in. They might not have thought that a couple of years later. They didn't realize what they were getting into exactly, but fear, 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 fear. You can look at this in very recent wars. It's easy to say um, the United States invaded Iraq for X reason or Y reason or Z reason, but 
America was still afraid, afraid from 9-11. And that fear messed with our sense of rationality. The fears don't have to be legitimate. The fears don't have to be well-founded. They just have to exist. <laughs> uh, why did Vladimir Putin invade Ukraine in February 2022? Fear, insecurity, internal and external insecurity. Not security, not because he was strong, but because he felt weak. That's why most wars start. Every country that made a conscious, conscious decision to go to war, they had a choice and they made it, usually made it out of fear. So why World War I happened? Let's start with the most forgotten major power of World War I. A power that I've read a lot about, I think is fascinating just because, ooh, there's a lot to unpack. Austria-Hungary. American textbooks, American textbooks like to talk about World War I you know, because they spend the entire time talking about America, America, America. Oh, and then World War I happened. But because they spend every waking minute focused on America until World War I begins, they're missing all that critical context of all the European stuff that caused World War I. It's easier to boil down to, well, there were a bunch of alliances, and so they started fighting. And that meant that everybody got involved because alliances are bad. But as we'll see, the alliances, no single country went to war by treaty obligation in World War I. They all made a choice. But okay, so, Austria-Hungary. What the heck is in Austria-Hungary? I mean, I think one reason Austria-Hungary's story doesn't get told is because it doesn't exist anymore. I mean, every other major power in World War I has a successor state. You got Britain still alive, France is still alive, Germany is still alive, Russia's gone through some changes, but they're still alive. Even the Ottoman Empire might have fallen apart, but Turkey told the Ottoman Empire's story. Turkey succeeded the Ottoman Empire, and they're... They control most of the core territories of that empire now. But there is no Austria-Hungary. It's gone. There's like 20 countries where Austria-Hungary used to be, which was kind of the reason they fell apart. So what was Austria-Hungary? I'm obsessed with Austria-Hungary. Um, Austria-Hungary was the Habsburg or the Habsburg Empire. You ever heard of these guys, the Habsburgs, this big European dynasty that ruled in big parts of Europe for ever since the Middle Ages, the 1200s AD. They were an ancient dynasty, and they're famous for uh, the whole niece marrying uncle and cousins marrying stuff that produced some pretty wonky effects in the bloodline. Austro-Hungarian genes were not in great shape. <laughs> but um, So Austria-Hungary was... The Habsburgs had started as the Archdukes of Austria, and they gradually expanded their territory through very canny marriages and military conquests and stuff until they ruled a decent-sized empire in Central Europe. This empire was ruled by a small minority of, of German-speaking Austrians, and it consisted of <clears throat> Czechoslovakia, Czech and Slovakia, parts of Ukraine, parts of Hungary, most of Hungary, parts of Romania, uh, Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, parts of Italy. You get it. Parts of Poland. I forgot Poland. Um, forgot about Poland. <laughs> That's an old name. But um, so you got this crazy hodgepodge empire ruled by a minority of Germans. The only other really big ethnic group in the empire were the Hungarians. And in for a while, the Germans were the ones on top, and they were telling everybody else what to do. But in 1867, the Hungarians got their chance after Austria was defeated by the Prussians, long story, and basically used the new weakness of the empire to assert themselves, the other major minority in 
Austria-Hungary because there was no majority population in Austria-Hungary. Everybody was a minority, just sizes of minorities. So they forced them to be recognized like on equal terms with Austria. So Austria-Hungary was a divided state with an Austrian half and a Hungarian half, each of which contained multiple minorities that really did not want to be part of this weird empire. Austria-Hungary was a multi-ethnic, divided empire where the Hungarian half and the Austrian half had to agree on everything their government did from 1867 onwards, and they usually did not agree, especially when it came to army expansion. Hungarian nobles, which were like a large proportion of Hungary's population, the only ones who could vote in Hungary, by the way, did not want to raise their own taxes. So whenever Austria is like, we need a bigger army, Hungary is like, nope, 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 for years, for years. So when World War I does kick off, Austria-Hungary, for its size, has a very small army. No reserves, no good reserves whatsoever, and that will bite them, bite them bad. But So this, this was a decaying empire. Austria-Hungary was clearly declining in power throughout the 19th century. They'd started out after the defeat of Napoleon as like the big guy on the block, the big, one of the possibly the most powerful country in Europe. That, that it was all downhill from there. And by 1914, every other country in Europe was looking at these guys like, these guys aren't going to last much longer. The, uh, all these nationalities, all of them wanted to be independent, whether they wanted to have their own country or to join with an existing country. The Italians wanted to join with Italy. The Czechs and the Slovaks wanted their own country. The Ukrainians wanted either to be part of Russia, long story, or to be independent, which that's a long story. We... The Ukrainian story is not something I'm getting into right now. Uh, the Poles wanted to be part of an independent Poland. The Transylvanians wanted to be united with their mother country, Romania. And, of course, the Serbs wanted to be united with Serbia. Yeah, so there's there's your, there's going to be the key to your problem right there. But uh, everybody figured, yeah, looking at Austria-Hungary, it's gridlocked political system. It's a terrible political stalemate. It's declining economy. The fact that nobody in the country want to be part of the country. There's nothing holding the empire together except loyalty to the Habsburg dynasty. The Habsburg emperor was Franz Josef. He was 84 years old. He had been emperor since 1848. Man had been emperor for over 60 years. And he, when World War I begins, this guy is just like, please let me die. Please just let me die. <laughs> I mean, he'd had a hard life. He, um, his wife, the Empress Elizabeth, had been assassinated by anarchists. Uh, his son had committed suicide. His family's members had died in random, terrible ways. His and he didn't like the only member of his family. The only member of his family that survived. Only competent member. He wasn't a big fan of. That was his nephew, the commander in chief of the army, uh, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, and. A very a radical figure who wanted to reorganize the Austro-Hungarian Empire into a federal state where every ethnicity had its like its own sort of separate state that, that would be a something like the United States of Europe. This guy, who was conservative and authoritarian, but also weirdly federalist and pro-Slavic, was Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the throne, commander-in-chief of the army. And the only person in the Austro-Hungarian Empire who saw a decent way to keep it alive. So that's Franz Ferdinand. And he's about to die. (laughs) 
because Austria-Hungary's biggest problem long-term was all these minorities inside its borders that wanted to be their own countries now. This wasn't like the Middle Ages where everyone was a peasant and they didn't care what country they were part of. They were just like, please don't tax me too much. Now they're all conscious thinking citizens who are like, we want to be part of Italy or Czechoslovakia or Poland or Serbia. So what happens over the first of the 20 years leading up to World War I, the big cause, the proximate cause of World War I was a power vacuum in the, in the Balkans. This was caused by the decline of not only the Austrians, but the decline of the Ottoman Empire, which had ruled Southeastern Europe for centuries. But the Ottoman Empire was also declining even faster than the Austrians. And what had happened was all these countries in the Balkans had declared independence and won their independence wars. Uh, in 1912 and 1913, there are these major conflicts that are key parts of the lead up to World War I that almost no one knows about. Uh, the First and Second Balkan Wars. This power vacuum in the Balkans expands. And First Balkan War, an alliance of Balkan countries, Serbia, Bulgaria, Greece, uh, Montenegro, all declare war on the Ottoman Empire and take what's left of its territory in Europe. Greece gets some land, Serbia gets some land, Bulgaria gets some land. Uh, Second Balkan War is when Bulgaria decided they didn't like their share of the spoils. They attack Serbia, everybody dogpiles on them, and then they lose some territory. So Serbia and Bulgaria, not friends now, but Serbia is much larger than it used to be. And Serbia had been a thorn in Austria-Hungary's side for decades because Austria-Hungary contained a large Serbian minority, but which wanted to be unified with the bigger Serbian country. And Serbia had been encouraging this minority. There had been lots of agitation, lots of revolts. Austria-Hungary viewed Serbia as a threat to the existence of its empire. Because if the Serbians got their way and they managed to achieve union with bigger Serbia, then everyone else would want their way too. The empire was going to collapse. This was the thread that was going to cause it to unravel. Fear, like I said, fear, 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 fear. Austria, the Austro-Hungarian Empire is going to collapse unless we do something about this Serbia problem. We are going to die. <laughs> or we're going to get assassinated. Or we're going to get overthrown and executed like the French kings had, had happened to them back in the revolution. We got to do something about this problem. So when Franz Ferdinand is assassinated on June 28, 1914, this does not have to cause World War I. This does not have to cause World War I. But Austria-Hungary sees their opportunity to put Serbia in its place, to solve this Serbia problem. Because Franz Ferdinand was assassinated by a group of Serbian nationalists who were sort of, but not really connected to the Serbian government. Austria-Hungary is like, this is our chance. This is the excuse we need. This is our opportunity to solve this problem and stop the decline of our empire. So there we go. But there's one problem. Serbia was backed up by another power, Russia. And Russia was afraid. Russia had just suffered a revolution, the unsuccessful Russian Revolution of 1905. They were afraid of no one more than their own people. Like, the Russian Revolution in 1917, the big one, the one with the, that founded the Soviet Union, the communists come to power, that didn't come out of nowhere. The czars were paranoid and terrified of revolutions. Tsar Nicholas II was sitting on his throne like, no, Germany, Austria, they're scary. 
But you know what's really scary? The, peop- the, the peasants, the peasants and the workers in the factories, those are what scare me more than any German soldier. No one is more dangerous to the czars than their own people. And Russia was, um, Russia was closely aligned with Serbia. There's a lot of national and uh, patriotic feeling to support Serbia against bigger enemies because Serbia, like Russia, were orthodox Slavs. There was this feeling of religious and national kinship, especially in a lot of the, uh, a lot of the cities and a lot of the, there was this idea called pan-Slavism that all Slavs, all orthodox communities need to be united against the West. It's uh, a little bit current, right? So pan-Slavism. And Russia is afraid because last one time recently, Russia hadn't backed Serbia up and there had been protests and riots in the streets. So the czars are like, okay, next time Serbia gets in trouble, we have to back them up. We don't have a choice. We might be overthrown if we don't. Fear. Fear, fear, fear. You know who else was afraid? Germany. Germany shouldn't have been afraid. You know, Germany was the fastest growing country in Europe in both population and economy. Germany was becoming superpower like in the last 40 years leading up to World War I. They were growing so fast. They were growing so fast they were scaring everybody else, which, you know, fear, 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 right? The growth of Germany terrified Britain and France in particular. Uh, the, when Germany had been founded, the Chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, who made a very prescient uh, prophecy when he said, you know, the next great war will start from some damn thing in the Balkans, <laughs> you know, like, oh, gee, Mr. Bismarck, I wish you'd been around a little bit longer to help stop this because Bismarck's policy was Germany wins its wars, it unifies for the first time in 1871 into one country, and Bismarck says, okay, we're done. We don't want anything else. We don't want any more territory. We don't want any colonies. We are set. So Bismarck knows France is hostile. France is always going to be an enemy. So Bismarck signs a treaty with Russia. Russia, we're going to have a non-aggression pact. You don't attack us. We don't attack you. We don't have to worry about each other. And Russia's like, great, that's awesome. Then the old German emperor dies, his son dies, and old German emperor's grandson, Wilhelm II, comes to the throne. Wilhelm's like, I want Germany to be a world power. We want our place in the sun. This was a policy called uh, Weltpolitik, world politic. Uh, World politics, world power. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm gets rid of Bismarck, instantly makes Russia angry by tearing up the non-aggression pact, uh, which causes Russia to ally with France. Russia's like, oh, all right, geez. And Russia allies with France. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm is like, I want to build a big navy. So he builds a big navy. And Britain is like, hey, Germany, uh, what you building that navy for? Uh, we're the only ones around here with a big navy. And now you're building one too. So that kind of seems like you're trying to do our thing. Why would that be? So now Britain's mad at them too. So Germany's facing, by their own fault, a real danger of encirclement, especially by France and Russia, a two-front war. Their only ally in the world, their only dependable ally, is Austria-Hungary, the country that is about to fall apart, and everybody knows it. So Germany is afraid. They're afraid of being encircled by the other European powers. They're especially afraid of Russia. Russia's, um, in the years up to World War I, Russia is expanding its industry and its economy fast. Its military is getting a lot bigger. It's building lots of railroads so it can mobilize much faster. And Germany's looking over at Russia. It's like, that they're, they're getting really strong really fast. Russia's strength is deceptive, as we'll see. But Germany's looking over at Russia like, that's going to be a problem. The German generals are screaming their heads off. Like, 
like, you know, Kaiser, if we don't fight Russia by 1920, they may be too powerful for us to defeat. We need, we need war sooner rather than later if it's going to come at all. Fear, 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 fear. And if Austria-Hungary gets in a tangle with Serbia and Russia backs Serbia up, Germany cannot afford to let Austria-Hungary die because then they are alone in Europe. They have no other allies. Yeah, they have Italy, but come on, it's Italy. And Italy isn't even really, Italy's lukewarm because Italy hates Austria-Hungary because there's Italian minorities in Austria-Hungary that Italy wants to return to the embrace of, the, of Rome. So Germany's like, if something goes down, we cannot let Austria-Hungary get stomped. So when Austria-Hungary starts raising hell at Serbia for the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, an excuse to start a war that they want, otherwise their government will collapse, possibly, Germany's like, Austria, bro, we got your back. No matter what you do, we got your back. They're going to regret saying that in a few weeks. But, you know, they. so there it is. Like, Germany has to support Austria-Hungary no matter what they do. Because if Austria goes, Germany's alone. Austria-Hungary can't let Serbia get away with another provocation. Or they look weak. Russia can't let Serbia fall. Or their government might fall. Fear, 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 fear. Alliances mattered less than insecurity and fear, which were the reasons for the alliances in the first place. Germany allied with Austria-Hungary because they didn't want to be alone in Europe. France allied with Russia because they were both scared of Germany. Fear. German, the, the alliances didn't cause World War I. It was fear. It was this unbalanced set of uh, global powers with some powers getting stronger, some powers getting weaker, that caused insecurity in everybody. So... What did happen? None of the major powers. I'm going to be honest, none, of the major, none of the major powers went to war because of treaties of alliance. None. Germany was not obligated by treaty to back up Austria-Hungary. Austria-Hungary was lodged in an offensive war. Their alliance was defensive, but Germany felt like they had to back up Austria-Hungary, otherwise the empire was going. They were going to collapse, and Russia was going to overwhelm them. So, like I said, when the Serbians assassinated Archduke Ferdinand. Austria-Hungary did not have to start World War I, but they were determined to go to war to punish Serbia, hopefully restore their reputation as a European power, and show the other internal minorities who was boss. Get this clear. Austria-Hungary did not want a world war. They, they didn't think it would be a world war. They wanted this to be a third Balkan war. Austria-Hungary would have been pleased as punch, just go in and whack Serbia and have that be the end of it. This didn't have to get any bigger than Austria-Hungary versus Serbia. But then Russia comes in in July 1914 and says, Hey, Austria, you go after Serbia. We're coming after you. And Germany says, "Okay, Well, well Russia, we can't let Austria-Hungary... They're idiots, but there are idiots. We can't let them do this. You mess with them or you're going to deal with us. Russia's like, France, you got our back over there? France is like, what? What's going on over there? Because France and Britain and most countries, no one knew that World War I was imminent until like days beforehand. They didn't have time to get ready. Uh, France was in the middle of one of the a great big political scandal where the wife of the former prime minister had assassinated some newspaper editor because he had published her premarital letters with her husband when they were, I think, both married. I have to look that up. But uh, Britain was dealing with Irish problems. What else is new? So uh, Germany was... Calm, calmly just having a nice summer and then Austria-Hungary says Serbia if you don't do these 14 things right now we're going to declare war on you and everybody's like what what what's going on over there 
days, days in which all this goes to hell. But on July 28, 1914, Serbia refuses the ultimatum and Austria-Hungary declares war and starts bombarding Serbia. This automatically has Russia start mobilizing their forces. Germany's like, oh, oh, it's on. It's on, isn't it? Germany starts mobilizing. France looks over Germany. That's They're mobilizing. France starts mobilizing. And it's on. So my point is, I, I took a long time to explain why this happened, mainly because I wanted to feature Austria-Hungary and explain their position because I think that they don't get understood. But also just understand fear, 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 insecurity. That's what started World War I, not the alliance system. The alliances didn't necessarily mean the war was going to start. Any country, every one of these countries made a decision that they looked at like Austria-Hungary, like, well, we can't let this go. We have to fight Serbia, Russia. We can't afford not to help Serbia out. Germany, we can't afford not, we can't afford to leave Austria-Hungary alone. Germany looks at Russia and France and says, War with Russia means war with France. Let's go attack France. France is like, we got to go. And then Germany attacks Belgium and Britain, who could have stayed out of this entire thing because none of their alliances bound them up that closely. They were just general understandings. Britain was not firmly allied with France or Russia. They just had understandings. Britain looks at this and is like, if Germany gets control of Europe, we are alone against them. We got to get in there. So all these six countries, France, Britain, Russia, and Serbia on the one hand, Germany and Austria-Hungary on the other, they all join this war out of fear and insecurity. None of them were dragged into it. None of them were eager for it. But they made the conscious decision based on looking at all the factors like war is the option, is the best option. All the options are bad. War is the least bad, basically. So that's how World War I began. Fear and insecurity. Got it? All right, so let's get to these war fronts. War fronts, lots of war fronts. We got this stuff going on. The armies are marching across Europe. It's 1914, guns of August. Uh, so by the way, if uh, you do read a book on the outbreak of World War I, I don't really recommend Barbara Tuckman's classic Guns of August. It's very su- it's superseded by a lot of more modern uh, research. Uh, I think Holger Herwig has written a great book on the Battle of the Marne. Uh, there's a good book called by Christopher Clark called The Sleepwalkers. And that one's like a new standard, although people disagree with it. Because I said the, out, the beginning of this war is still very controversial to this day. Everybody's like, who had the most responsibility? Who was most responsible? I'm going to be radical and say Austria-Hungary was the most responsible. They were the only ones for whom war was the thing they were trying to accomplish. No one else really wanted a war. They were all trying to scare each other off of joining the war, which led them into the war. But Austria-Hungary was the only one who was used, trying to use war to pursue a policy aim. Everyone else was just trying to back up their friends. Austria-Hungary doesn't fight Serbia. There is no World War I. So I blame Austria-Hungary. It's easy to blame them, too, because they don't exist anymore. They can't defend themselves. Okay, so these war fronts. And I want to make something very clear. There's a bunch of wars about to break out. I'm about to show you a bunch of different places where this war took place. But here's the thing. The fighting looked very different in all these places. It wasn't all trench warfare everywhere. There were some places that looked more like the Western Front, especially uh, Italy, the Gallipoli campaign, the campaign in Serbia for a while. But most of the time, this looked very different from what we think of when we think of World War I, the fighting in general, the operations, the all that stuff. 
It was just taking place in different parts of the world, different terrain, different land. It was different war, different countries involved with different force structures, different conflicts. World War I does not all look like the mud and blood of Flanders. It doesn't all look like the Somme or Verdun. Okay? So let's start with the war, the really distant part. The Pacific. There was a Pacific front to World War I. Very small. Um, this was, it was over pretty quickly. See, Germany had a colonial empire in the Pacific. Not a big one. They had a city in China, Tsingtao. They had some islands. They had the Marsh, I believe the Marshall Islands, Samoa. They had part of New Guinea. And when war breaks out in 1914, Japan joins the Allies. Japan was aligned against Germany in World War I. Not out of the goodness of their heart. Because they wanted what they wanted Germany's stuff. Germany has all this stuff sitting around the Pacific, and Japan's like, I'll be taking that, thank you. So by August 1914, Japan is attacking the city of Tsingtao. It falls in November 1914. There's a siege, a three-month siege in China that's part of World War I. Japan also occupies most of the Pacific Islands. Uh, Australia. Australia and New Zealand sent forces to occupy German islands, New Guinea, and Samoa. So those were small conflicts, not, not especially costly conflicts, but the war's going on out here nonetheless. And we talked about the German ships that were at large in the Pacific and in the Atlantic to a degree in a couple weeks ago in the uh, Death Ride episode. And by the end of 1914, almost all those ships had been run down. Only a couple here and there were eventually cornered and destroyed. So only 10 German ships, 10 German cruisers were outside of the main German waters when the war started. And it didn't take long before they were all eliminated. And Germany is not a sufficient force. The central powers do not have naval forces running around outside Europe again. That's the... The British and the French control the world's oceans. Eventually, America also controls the world's oceans. So there is this global context, but especially in the Pacific, it's not that costly, and it's mostly over by 1914. But it did occur. There is World War I fighting in the Pacific theater and in China. In 1917, China joins the Allies. They don't do a whole lot, but they're part of the Allies. Technically, they declare war on Germany. Not well sure... Britain and France are like, thanks, China. We love the moral support because China's like in the middle of a political crisis. They're going, ah, we'll declare war on Germany. Sure. Okay. But uh, so Pacific did happen. What about Africa? There was World War I in Africa. Several fronts in Africa. Uh, the Germans had colonies in Africa that Britain and France wanted to wipe out. Not because... And people misconstrue this. They see this as Britain and France want to get more empire. They weren't really interested in the German empire in Africa. They, wasn't like, they weren't like looking at it, licking their chops like, hmm, more empire. No, they just wanted to get rid of it because it was a nuisance. They never devoted really much strength to wiping out the German empire in Africa. They left that to their second line forces. But these, the World War I would continue in Africa until after the armistice, until after the war was officially over, there would still be German forces fighting but until after the war was over. So Germany had four big colonies in Africa. Uh, German West Africa was Togoland, which is now Togo, and uh, German Congo, which is now Cameroon. 
They controlled German Southwest Africa, which is now Namibia, and German East Africa, which is now Tanzania. They So Germany had these imperial possessions in Africa. Did they ask the Africans if they wanted to be ruled by the Germans? No, <laughs> no, they did not. And in 1904-05, Germany committed what is considered to be, by some, the first genocide of the 20th century in Namibia against the Herero and the Namaka people. Uh, they pretty much wiped them out. It was one of those things that if it had happened in Europe would have been a big story. But since it happened in Africa or Asia, it's just like, yep, that's just colonizers doing what colonizers do. It's only become to be a really big thing that is known in recent years. This happened 10 years before World War One. this very early genocide. It didn't have the big million number of dead that other later genocides would have, so it didn't get as much attention. But it's only become come to be really be known lately. So this First World War in Africa, very different than the Western Front for obvious reasons. There are times in the First World War in Africa, these campaigns would go into places that no white man had ever seen. Plenty of other people have seen it. The Africans did not have a good time in this war. Uh, the, the movement of all these armies and the eating of all this food destroyed African economies. So there were two really long campaigns. The one in Cameroon was... There was a small German force in Cameroon that held out against British and French forces until early 1916. And in East Africa, the more legendary campaign, which I want to turn into an episode probably in the next season, look out for this, uh, the German East Africa campaign, this one random German colonel named uh, Paul von Lettau Vorbeck led a guerrilla-style campaign across East Africa throughout the entire war. The British captured the major cities, but they could not catch him and his several thousand German and mostly African troops. He even invaded a Portuguese Mozambique at some points to gather more supplies and to keep moving, keep moving essentially. But this tiny little German force of a few German officers and NCOs, but mostly uh, black African soldiers, was just blitzing around Tanzania for the entire war. They surrender after they get news of the armistice in 1918, and they, they surrender like two weeks after the armistice because people have, they have to be convinced that the war is over because they don't have radio communication. So the Germans in this conflict, this is the only undefeated technically German army. It's very, it's legend, it was legendary to Germans because the crazy East African campaign of Paul von Lettau Vorbeck one of the big reasons these campaigns took so long for the Allies to end is they had overwhelming superiority. They had all the supplies, the resources, the manpower, but the tr but these were always on the backest of backburners. The Allies were like, whatever the Germans do, they can't affect the course of the war from there. And the Allies were right. No nothing the Germans did in these colonies was going to change the course of World War I. The, they could hold out for the entire war, but it didn't matter. Paul von Lettau Vorbeck held out for the entire war, but it didn't matter. The Germans still lost East Africa in the peace treaty. It was an amazing campaign, but it was ultimately strategically irrelevant. But it was it was very interesting. It was um, lots of crazy battles, lots of crazy maneuvers. And all this is in very rugged, distant terrain. You got, you got several thousand men who were barely supplied. And most of these soldiers fighting in these campaigns are African on both sides. Over 1 million African soldiers were recruited into European armies to fight the First World War. 1 million Africans. Some of them were South African. Most of them were black. 
there were lots of black soldiers fighting the First World War, not just the famous American ones. Those guys do deserve a lot of all the credit they can get. So there was an entire camp front of the First World War in Africa. There's fighting and going on in Africa from, you know, from the first minute of the war until the very, until after the end. So First World War in Africa, that was a front. That was, there was fighting going on. It looked nothing like the Western Front. This was a few thousand men fighting distant battles in jungles and savannas and forests and hills and mountains. Like, this is guerrilla war. This is not trench warfare. So, that's Africa. Was there war in North America? Almost. <laughs> Be very surprised. Almost. So, Mexico. I mean, Mexico is not in World War I, but somebody wanted them to be. See, Mexico was fighting a long, bloody revolution, the Mexican Revolution. This is a great epic on its own. It's one of the least known, I think, most interesting stories in 20th century history, the Mexican Revolution. This is where Pancho Villa raids into American territory and America sends a small force out after him. But that's only one small part of the big drama of the Mexican Revolution. This is... But anyway, so there's a point in time when Germany believes that America might be trying to enter World War I. So they send a message to Mexico. It's called the Zimmerman Telegram. It's pretty famous, saying, hey, Mexico, if you declare war on America when America declares war on us, we'll make sure you get all that territory you lost all so long ago, including like New Mexico, California, and Texas. We'll make sure you get that back in the peace treaty. The Mexicans get this message and they look at like, the chaos that is going on in their country. They're like, no, we're good, thanks. We couldn't take it if we wanted to. And even if we could, we're kind of in a mess over here. But this telegram gets discovered by British intelligence who give it to the Americans. And it's one of the big reasons America enters World War I because Germany basically tried to offer up a third of the country to Mexico. And yeah, that that makes people mad. So Mexico... Crazy. That would be a crazy alternate history, right? What if Mexico did enter World War I and then immediately got flattened by the U.S. Army because they are a revolutionary government torn apart by civil war and multiple conflicts across the entire country? Yeah, that would have been a really uh, not, not a great time for Mexico, which is already having a bad time. So, yeah. But ultimately, several countries did join the allies from Latin America. Um Uh, Several countries joined and sent resources. They didn't send troops. No Latin American troops really fought in World War I, but they sent resources and some of them declared war on Germany. So that was still part of the war. All right. So now we've gotten rid of the global stuff. We've got Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Americas out of the way. So let's zoom back in. Zoom the map in to Europe and the Middle East. Let's talk about the Ottoman Empire. If you didn't know the Ottoman Empire was involved in World War I, you're probably in pretty good company because a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't know it was even still around. Yeah, the Ottoman Empire, which had been founded in the medieval times, the Middle Ages, and had been around for the early modern period, had fought the Knights of St. John on Malta, was still alive in the 20th century. It won't do in too hot. It was, it was having a bad time. See... Ottoman Empire had been declining for like the last 200 years. You can mark that decline wherever you want. Some people say it has started at the Siege of Vienna in 1683 when the Polish-winged Hussars defeated, along with a bunch of other allies, defeated an Ottoman army. 
But they've been declining for a while, and by 1914, they were not doing hot. The Ottoman Empire was called the sick man of Europe. It was widely assumed, like the Austro-Hungarians, that it would fall, but that had been, they had been in trouble long, much longer than Austria-Hungary. Uh, we, talked, we talked about how the Ottoman Empire had basically been forced out of Europe by the Balkan powers in the Balkan Wars, 1912 and 13. They held on to modern Turkey, uh, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, Iraq, uh, parts of Arabia, and that was it. And they were looking around like, they saw World War I starting in August 1914, and the Ottomans are like, mm, we gotta, should we be in this war? Because they, they knew that their military wasn't ready for the war. That was obvious. But at the same time, if they didn't join one of the alliances, because they weren't part of any alliance, they had wanted an ally forever. They'd wanted somebody, please ally with us. We have no friends in the world. Please ally with us. They went to the British and the French. Please, can we can we join the alliance? And British and French were like, no, of course not. You're the Ottomans. We don't like you. The Ottomans even went to the Russians, their mortal centuries-long enemies. The Russian minister was so surprised that they were asking him for an arm for an alliance that he didn't know what to say. He was like, so the Ottoman Empire had to turn to the only country in Europe that needed allies and didn't have enough of them, Germany. Plus, Britain, France, and Russia all had territorial ambitions within the Ottoman Empire. If the Ottoman Empire fell apart, they were going to be the ones who benefited. Germany didn't really have that going on. Germany didn't really want the Ottoman Empire as an ally. They didn't want to have to worry about supporting them. The Ottoman Empire is looking around and seeing the war, because you see, everybody blames the alliances for World War I. I keep saying this, but you know what's worse than being in an alliance? Not being in one, realizing you don't have a friend in the world and looking at this war going on and knowing that whichever side wins, if you're not on that side, you're going to lose. The, uh, the allies will chop you up or the central powers will chop you up. So Ottomans just like, uh, 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 and then they side with Germany, mainly because that's, that's the only power that doesn't really have anything to gain from the destruction of the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire joins World War I in November 1914, and everybody assumes they're going to be knocked out immediately. Everybody assumes that there's, this is the weak one. They're, they surprise everybody. They surprise everybody, but not in the way they think. See, a lot of people, a lot of allies were afraid that the Ottoman Sultan was who happened to be also the Caliph of Islam, the uh, the Caliph of the Sunni faith. So he's acknowledged by many people as the spiritual and temporal leader of the Sunni faith of Sunni Islam. He was going to declare a jihad, and then all the Muslims in the British and French and Russian empires would rise up against their overlords. Like the British and French Russians were kind of terrified of this. Like, oh my goodness, he's going to start all these rebellions back in our African and Asian colonies. Britain was worried about India. There are millions of Muslims living in India, and Britain's like, oh my goodness, the Ottoman Empire is going to start this huge rebellion in India. The Ottoman <laughs> Sultan just goes on the roof and says, I declare jihad. And nothing happens. Like, there's a couple of little bitty things, but nobody... The worldwide Muslim community looks over is like, huh, that's weird. Good luck. And they just keep doing whatever they're doing. The Ottoman Empire pulls out its military, but it's not that great. And the European powers underestimate them. So the Ottoman Empire's war is fought on four fronts. Four fronts for the Ottoman Empire. This is the war in the Middle East. The war in the Caucasus. And the war in... Uh, close to Constantinople. There's this whole conflict, and from out, throughout this war, from November 1914 onward, there is an active battlefront of World War I in the Middle East. 
Now, the war in the Middle East is usually boiled down to one guy, Lawrence of Arabia. People know about this guy. He's famous. He had a big budget Hollywood movie that won a bunch of awards. So when people think of, if they think of the Ottoman front, the war in the Middle East at all, they think of Lawrence of Arabia. But it was much more complicated, much bigger than that. So there's four fronts. It's like points of a compass. The Ottomans are trying to protect their capital, Constantinople, which is sitting aside one of the main sea routes from Europe to Russia, the Bosporus. It's a very critical geographic choke point. So in 1915, the Allies try to knock, they say, we'll knock the Ottomans out of the war in a single blow. We're going to land an army near Constantinople, capture it, and open up our trade and communications with Russia to keep Russia supplied and then the war. It'll be easy. We'll knock the Ottomans out in one blow. And this is one of my favorite alternate history scenarios, because what if this worked? What if they had done that? What if they had managed to keep Russia alive longer than they did? That would be interesting. I want to know what happens because this is the Gallipoli campaign. This is when Britain and France and their colonial subjects and imperial subjects land on the Gallipoli Peninsula near Constantinople to try and march on and seize the Ottoman capital, modern-day Istanbul in Turkey, and knock the Ottomans out of the war. And they expect it to be a walkover. It's not. It is not. They, they face fanatic resistance from the Turkish army, led by some Germans and some Ottoman Turkish generals, including uh, Mustafa Kemal, who's going to be famous later as the father of modern Turkey. But uh, what was supposed to be a quick, you know, in and out, 20-minute adventure turns into a slogging trench warfare, very similar to what's going on in France and Belgium right now, the Western Front. Uh, only it's on the open sand and sunny shores of the Mediterranean. This is the Battle of Gallipoli. It lasts for months. It's terrible. It sucks. Um, it's also famously one of the places where Australian and New Zealand troops were committed to a major battle for the first time. And it's traumatic for them. They lose a lot of people. And it becomes one of the cornerstones of modern Australian and New Zealander uh, national identity. The, the Gallipoli campaign is a big establishing moment for these two countries where they see this, this common sacrifice and this common bravery, and they see it as a unifying moment. So that's the Gallipoli campaign. The British eventually with the British and French and the Australians, New Zealanders, the Allies eventually withdraw when it's a clear they're not going to win this. It only takes them nine months to figure this out. They leave a, thousands of dead behind them. It's a terrible, bloody battle. But the Turks hold out too. So it's kind of the Ottomans, the Turks, managed to defeat the Allies in this battle. And that is major for them too. It's, that's considered to be the, one of the founding moments of Turkish identity, Turkish nationalism. Like, yeah, we lost the rest of our empire, but by God, we held at Gallipoli. And so that's their thing. Gallipoli is really important. And a lot of the time, you'll see the war against the Ottoman Empire boil down to just Gallipoli. But no, let's go look at what was happening on the other three points of the compass. Gallipoli is one point of the compass. The second point is the Caucasus. This is where Turkey and the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire share a common border in what's now Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan. This is a dismal campaign. It's fought over enormous mountains where logistics are terrible. The first uh, Ottoman offensive of the war takes place in the Caucasus in December 1914. They try to destroy this large Russian army in the town of Sarakamish in 
what's now, I think, very close to the Georgian-Russian border. It is the dead of winter in the mountains of the Caucasus. It is icy, miserable. Um, they make no logistic preparations. And the, the Turkish army is basically, like, annihilated. It's it's miserable. It's a miserable defeat. There's almost over 100,000 dead. But, like the Middle East, the Caucasus front will be a major front throughout the war. There will, up until up until the end of the war, and for a little bit of while after the war, because we got to go after the armistice, there's going to be fighting in the Caucasus between Turkey and Russia, and then other people get involved. But one other very big thing happens up here in the Caucasus front. Besides seesaw back and forth battles throughout the war in the most miserable winter weather, most highest mountains, bleak atmosphere you can think of, again, this does not look like trench warfare. It looks rather different than that. It's much more open, much more fluid. There's a lot of movement. There's armies moving miles and miles on these fronts when the Western Front is sitting basically still for almost four years with a little bit of movement here and there. Big bloody battles like Verdun, the Somme, Passchendaele, but not much movement. There's a lot of movement in the Caucasus. This is mountain fighting. Uh, one really big thing happens in the Caucasus. This is the Armenian Genocide. Uh, the 20th century's first very well-known genocide, there, the facts of which are still very subject to debate. Turkish nationalists will say there was none. There was a genocide of some kind. How large it was, the extent to which it was, Never quite be known, but the losses, the... See, the Armenians were Orthodox Christians, and they were part of a population that was very friendly to the Russians. But there were a lot of Armenians inside Turkish territory. And so when the Ottomans suffered this terrible defeat at Sarakamish in 1914, they blamed the Armenians for deserting or for selling out to the enemy. So whether the truth of that is irrelevant, the Ottomans at some point massacre about a million to a million and a half Armenians in this enormous, terrible genocide, which is still heavily disputed and heavily controversial to this day. I'm not going to get too far into that. So there's always this fighting going on in the Caucasus. Lots of Russians versus Ottomans in the Caucasus. But then there's the Middle East. The British fault the Ottomans in Iraq. Uh, they tried to take Baghdad. Uh, they tried to... in. November 1914, the British occupy Basra, and they try to move up the Tigris and Euphrates and capture Baghdad in World War I. Most of this weight is carried by the Indian Army, the British colonial army of India. So it's Indian troops, many of which are also Muslim, fighting against these, these Turkish or Ottoman troops, which are trying to stop them from taking Baghdad. The first attempt is a complete failure. A British detachment gets surrounded and forced to surrender at Kut, El Amara in 1916, but by 1917, the British assemble over 100,000 men in Iraq to march on and take Baghdad by March 1917. They move farther north, and by the end of the war, the British are in the uh, northern Iraq oil fields around Mosul. So that is a major campaign that is going on this entire time. Again, throughout World War I, there is this front line going on in Iraq. Is also a front line in Egypt. The Ottomans try to attack Egypt early and close off the Suez Canal. This doesn't work. The British rally and push the Ottomans back. But by 1916-1917, the Gallipoli campaign has failed. The British are still trying to fight against the Ottomans in this area. And they're pushing into what is now Israel-Palestine area. 
And this is a crazy campaign of its own. This is, and one thing I keep forgetting to mention, and this in the Caucasus, in Mesopotamia, and in, Pal- in the Palestine-Syria campaign, which will last again until the end of the war, cavalry, lots of cavalry. We don't think of World War I as having much cavalry because we see the Western Front, the trenches, and oh, they're not using cavalry, that would be dumb. Yes, in certain contexts, using cavalry would be dumb, but cavalry lasted during and long after World War I because without large-scale motorization coming in yet, there still wasn't a lot of trucks being used. The Germans started World War I with about 20 motor vehicles. 20. Two zero. Um, the, everything was still drawn by horse. So cavalry is the, one of the only ways you can be mobile. It's only one of the only methods of mobility on the battlefield still. So this major campaign takes place in Syria and Palestine, what is now Israel-Palestine as well. And there's large-scale fighting. The um, Ottomans set up in front of the town of Gaza. And so there's this long, from 1917 to 1918 to the end of the war, there's a long campaign in Gaza, Beersheba, Jerusalem, Megiddo, Damascus, where the British Imperial, so the British and some Australians, some New Zealanders, are fighting the Ottoman Empire. And for a while in front of Gaza, the, there are one, two, three battles of Gaza where the British are trying to break through Ottoman trench lines. And it looks a little bit like the Western Front. It's just in the middle of the desert. And eventually the British break this stalemate. by They get a new general, Edmund Allenby, who is a very good general. He's transferred from the Western Front where he was fighting in the, in the, um, in the Battle of the Somme. He's transferred from the Western Front down to take command in Egypt. And he uses tanks. He uses tanks to breach the Ottoman lines in front of Gaza. You know, Gaza, which is so famous in the news now, but this major battle in front of Gaza using tanks. The only time tanks were ever used outside the Western Front in World War I was here on the Palestinian Front for the British to break through at Gaza. And at the same time, Allenby sends a cavalry force, the Australian Light Horse Brigade. Australians fighting for England in Egypt against the Turks, with a German general commanding the Turks. So it's crazy. This is World War One. This stuff like this is happening all the time. But there's this big cavalry move that outflanks the Ottoman lines, takes the town of Beersheba and moves up from the south and outflanks them, forces them to, with, to, to retreat. And by December 1917, Allenby captures Jerusalem. A few months later, around the time that World War One is coming to a climax, he launches this massive attack in northern, what's now northern Israel, at a place called Megiddo, where once again his cavalry corps outflanks the Ottoman army and forces them to retreat. This is when he starts penetrating up and takes Syria, uh, Damascus, Aleppo. His armies are in Aleppo when the armistice is declared and the war ends. So there's this long campaign in Syria, Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, all these places. Fun fact, this battle of Megiddo where Allenby uses this major cavalry charge, a cavalry charge in 1918. The, the biblical term for Megiddo, of course, is Armageddon. So yeah, there's actually a battle of Armageddon in World War I. So that's pretty much all the Ottoman fronts. The Ottoman troops showed up in weird places throughout the war. Some of them show up fighting the Russians in Romania and Ukraine, of all places. But 
Yeah, so that's the Ottomans are fighting this war on all fronts, and they do remarkably well. As you've seen, they've held the British off in several different places in major battles. When the British are like, oh, we're going to walk over these Ottomans, they do not walk over the Ottomans. The Ottomans fight much better than anyone expected. <laughs> They're one of the only countries that performs above expectations in World War I rather than below it. So yeah, this whole Ottoman Empire front. And of course, there's major developments for the future of world history on this front, because Britain and France plan to carve up the Middle East, take away all these Ottoman territories after the war. And the British also promise the to create a homeland for the Jewish people. In 1917, when they're about to conquer Palestine, they make this declaration, this diplomatic declaration, the Balfour Declaration, because the foreign minister, David Balfour, who says, he basically says, yeah, I would be completely open to the establishment of a Jewish homeland in the territory of Palestine. And this is one of the key events in the creation of modern-day Israel. That's a long story. I'm not getting into that. But that there's important stuff happening here, right? Oh, I forgot. I forgot. almost forgot. The Arab Revolt. This, uh, this large uprising by the Arabs, which may or may not have been as large as history and legend says it was. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia might have exaggerated a lot of his exploits, and the British might have exaggerated them as well for propaganda value. The Arab revolt spreads from uh, the, the British ally with Arab chieftains in what is now Saudi Arabia and say, hey, we'll support your revolt against the Ottomans. A lot of them don't rise up. Some do. And they are useful and successful in driving the Ottomans out of much of Arabia. But the Ottomans, I believe, are still holding Medina until 1918, until the end of the war. So there's that. All this crazy stuff, and that will lead eventually, that series of events will lead to a whole bunch of Arab politics and Arab nationalism, the creation of modern states like Jordan and Iraq, creation of Saudi Arabia, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East, and the creation of the Republic of Turkey is the result of this large-scale campaign in the Caucasus, in Iraq, in Palestine. There's fighting going on all over the Middle East throughout World War I. Not the Western Front. doesn't look anything like the Western Front. It's very spread out. There's lots of desert fighting. There's lots of cavalry. You get it. It's different. Mountain fighting in the Caucasus. Unfamiliar. Okay. So to get this started, because we're going to be going to Eastern and Southeastern Europe and the war there. Big thing you need to know. So in 1914, when the war pops off, when everything gets going, there's four major campaigns in the first couple months of the war. Most histories will focus on two. Most histories will focus on the German invasion of Belgium and France and the British and French attacks at the Battle of the Marne that drove them back and created the Western Front. That's the big one. That's the that's the big campaign everybody focuses on to for the start of World War I. The second campaign is when Russia attacks Germany in the first weeks of World War I and suffers a serious defeat at the Battle of Tannenberg. These are the two campaigns everyone talks about, but they were two of the four major campaigns in the first weeks, in the first couple months of World War I that defined the rest of the war. Because who are these people forgetting? Who do these people keep forgetting? Austria-Hungary, my favorite World War I power. I, I like them all. They're, they're all special in their own terrible, wonderful way. But Austria-Hungary fought two major campaigns. They fought a campaign against Serbia in 1914. They fought a campaign against the Russians in 1914, and they got their butts handed to them in both of these campaigns. 
Now, these battles are actually really critical for a few reasons, but we're going to explain them in their bigger context, right? So it's August 1914. World War I has just started. Armies are marching. Germany is piling like 90% of its military into Belgium and France to try to knock France out quickly before the Russians can get their stuff together and come charging down Germany's throat at Berlin. The Russians do come earlier than Germans expect. They attack into East Prussia, a very forested, swampy region in what's now northern Poland, and the small Russian exclave of Kaliningrad. So the Russians try this two-pronged attack. Uh, the commanders hate each other. It's The supply and logistics are awful. Morale is low. And the German army in the middle manages to juke, basically, and... Hold off one, punch the other, and then punch the first army. This is the battle. Uh, this is the East Prussian campaign. This includes several major battles. Uh, battles of Stalupponen, Gumbinin, uh, Missourian Lakes, and the big one, Tannenberg. This is the big one where the Ru Germans crush the Russian second army while the Germans are also invading Belgium and France on the other side of the, on the other front. Uh, the Russians basically get stomped in the first couple weeks of the war in the East, and they have trouble recovering from that. They really do. But while that's happening, that very important campaign where the Russians try to bum-rush the Germans in the first couple weeks of the war and get knocked out, boom, boom, Austria, Germany's like, yay, we won, we won. And then they look over and Austria is bleeding to death because Austria decided, for whatever reason, Okay, it's not for whatever reason, there are reasons. One was that they had maybe, possibly, the biggest military idiot of World War I in charge of their army. This guy is uh, General Franz Konrad von Herzendorf. Konrad von Herzendorf was astonishingly incompetent at his job. Like, I've, I've, there's nobody in the entire, in any of the armies in Europe in 1914 who is less good at his job. Maybe a couple of the Russians, but not really. Because, like I've said, Austria-Hungary did not Austria-Hungary did not have a very large military. It had not because of all those disputes within its divided government. The military had not grown on par with the rest of the country. The economy had grown, the country had grown, but the military hadn't grown. So Austria-Hungary had a small military. They had no reservists. They had a smaller military than most of the other countries. But they still decided to attack both Russia and Serbia at the same time for some reason. Neither attack is a success. The Austrians try to cross into Serbia, which, remember, is where this whole war started, and everybody forgets this campaign happened. The Austrians cross into Serbia in August 1914. There are enormous battles on the Drina River and near the Danube, and the Serbs wallop them. It's embarrassing. It's stupid. The Serbs drive the Austro-Hungarian army back. Austria-Hungary advances into Galicia, what is now called, what is now part of western Ukraine, and they do a bum rush charge and attack the Russians, and the Russians just annihilate them. The Austro-Hungarian army is ruined. It is one of the most crushing military defeats of military of history. Any any time in history, the Battle of Galicia, Austria loses all of Galicia. They end up having to hold the Carpathian Mountains. There's a city that's besieged, and what and what we see a lot in in this part of the war. This part where the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians are fighting the Russians. This part of the war is called the Eastern Front of World War I. It will remain a major front 
again, I keep saying this, throughout the entire war, until the armistice and then some. A lot of the chaos of after the armistice, when all these countries declare independence, when there's the Russian Civil War, when there's revolutions, all of, a lot of that chaos occurs where this Eastern Front is taking place. Because here you have three empires colliding, three empires which rule over large minority peoples, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Russia. But the fact that Austria-Hungary just gets stomped, just boom, stomped immediately. Like, Austria-Hungary charges into World War I, and a couple of months later, they are bleeding out. They, they are just crushed in these first couple of campaigns. They lost like 30 to 40% of their army in the first couple of months, and 50% of the officer corps, half the officer corps, and they don't have reserves. All the attempts to make a reserve army were messed up by their bad economy and their crappy government. So they don't have replacements for these guys. They got to cons- they got to conscript all the college students. And a lot of those reservists were the ones who spoke all the languages of all the different Austro-Hungarian minorities. Those guys are gone. Those guys are dead. Those guys are dead in Galicia or Serbia, and they're being replaced by. Germans, German college students who don't like the minorities, don't care about them. A lot of the minorities, especially uh, Czechs, Poles, not so much the Poles, not the Poles, uh, the Czechs, the Ukrainians, uh, the Serbs in the army, of course, start to desert and join the Russians or the Serbs. So what happens as a result of these two campaigns? These two campaigns are really important. And the other ones are important too, but these are more important because they never get any mentioned ever. Like, all the focus is on what's going on in France at the Battle of the Marne or in Prussia at the Battle of Tannenberg. But these two campaigns are important because from this point on, Austria-Hungary depends on Germany to keep it alive. Austria-Hungary is basically bleeding out. Their military cannot stand on its own. Austria-Hungary never wins a major offensive battle in World War I on their own. Their, their military is limping from the get-go, and it doesn't get any better, really. And it gets better slowly. But compared to Russia, Germany, France, Britain, Austria-Hungary easily had the worst army of any of the major powers. It gets punched in the face the very get-go. It does not get better. So the reason it's so important is because now Germany is basically supporting Austria-Hungary. They're fighting. Whenever Austria-Hungary gets into trouble, they're like, Germany, help! And Germany has to come over and save them. I mean, Germany could just let them die. But then Germany loses the war. They started this whole war because they knew that without Austria-Hungary, they were alone in Europe. And if Austria-Hungary goes, Germany goes. But Austria-Hungary can't defend itself, so Germany has to keep sending troops and sending resources over to Austria-Hungary to keep it alive. Just like a, just pumping adrenaline into its neck. Come on, stay, stay with me, buddy. Stay with me. But Austria-Hungary will continue to fight throughout the war with varying degrees of effectiveness and especially on the Eastern Front and in the Balkans. And uh, the Germans have a phrase. I love this phrase because it's, it's gallows humor. The Germans looking at the Austro-Hungarian, the generals start saying this phrase. They say, we are shackled to a corpse. Shackled to a corpse. Like th- these guys are going like, <laughs> Germany's fighting World War I with all these different countries and they also have to bail Austria-Hungary out every year somewhere, essentially. So 1914 ends, the last major campaign 1914 in Europe is again, Austria tries to attack Serbia again. Serbia loses Belgrade at first, but then retreats and snaps back. 
and drives the Austrians back out again. And Austria is just losing. <laughs> They're losing. So this is the Eastern Front. This is Eastern Front, that is Germany, Austria-Hungary fighting Russia, and the Balkan Front, where Austria-Hungary is fighting Serbia, and eventually a bunch of other people get involved in the Balkans. These fronts will continue. They will be fighting on these fronts for the rest of the war, especially the Balkans. Uh, the Russians collapsed in 1917 due to their revolution, but there's still combat going on over there. So the Eastern Front is different, much different than the Western Front. Just the way war is conducted out here, there's much more room. There's much more room for maneuver. There's a lot of movement. There's war of, the war on the Eastern Front, both armies maneuvered a lot. You have the front line swinging back and forth as different armies make attacks and counterattacks. Especially in 1914, throughout 1914, early 1915, there's constant back and forth battling as the Germans attack and they have to fall back because the Austro-Hungarians boloed something again. Austro-Hungarians launch a counterattack in the mountains. They lose like 300,000 people taking some random mountain in Hungary. They're like, we won! Good job, guys. Good, 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 good to keep it together. In 1915, in May 1915, Germany is still locked on the Western Front. They're looking for a break. They're looking for some way to improve their position because now they're locked into combat with Britain and France on the Western Front. They're locked into combat with Russia on the Eastern Front, and they're supporting the corpse. <laughs> they're trying to keep Austria-Hungary alive. So they figure the best way to do this, let's clean up the Eastern Front. So in May 1915, the Germans launched this major attack against the Russians in conjunction with the Austro-Hungarians, but really the Germans, in this battle in Poland called Gorlice-Tarnow. And this is a breakthrough battle. The Germans move in. The Russian line starts to crumble. Russia's military is, which everybody was so afraid of, is not performing well. Hmm, parallels. But Russia's military, everybody's been terrified of, is actually really badly supplied, poor morale, poor logistics, poor weapons. And the Russian military starts to dissolve. They start to fall back. Uh, they have to abandon most of Poland, which Russia ruled over. Big chunks of R Ukraine, Lithuania. The Germans capture Warsaw in August. This stage of the war for the Russians is called the Great Retreat. They abandon hundreds of miles of territory and they lose a million people in this in 1915. Like over a million people. It's a disaster for Russia. Russia's losing this war. Like 1914, you could argue that Russia's sort of okay. 1915, they're losing. The Germans have punched them in the gut. They're reeling back into their own territory, and they're losing. The Germans can't go too far because their logistics will not support this invasion, and they have to send troops back to the Western Front to stop the British and French attacks there in the trench warfare. But there's all this movement. There's lots of cavalry on the Eastern Front. Lots of, you know, just maneuvers operating, all this stuff that you don't see in the Western Front where everything's static, where these big trenches. There are trenches in the East. There are trenches, but they're less developed, shallower, easier to, the things you dig quickly for a few days before you, because you know you're moving on pretty soon. So Eastern Front is much more, just much more fluid fighting in general. Still large armies of infantry with machine guns and artillery, but add cavalry, add lots of railroads, armored trains, armored cars, much more fluid. Uh, Austria-Hungary Austria is still back there. We're helping Germany. We're, we Wait for me. <laughs> um, and there's this one battle in front of Kiev in about September, October 1915, where 
This one Russian general, Alexei Brusilov, slaps back the Austro-Hungarians when they get too close. They are defeated, take the predictable like several, couple hundred thousand casualties. And that's 1915 in the East. Eastern Front is big, huge armies moving all over the place. Not like the Western Front. So by mid-1915, these are all the fronts of the First World War. You have the Western Front, which we're familiar with, sort of. That's trench warfare. We, But then you have the Eastern Front. You have the Balkan Front. You have Gallipoli going on. You have the Caucasus going on. There's fighting in Egypt. There's fighting in Mesopotamia. There is fighting still going on in Africa, right? And of course, there's the U-boat war on the high seas of the Atlantic. I'm reinforcing this. This was a world war. This was a world war. And it's happening not just in France and Belgium. It's happening all over the world, all these different places with different kinds of fighting that didn't look like trench warfare. Okay, so let's bring in the supporting cast. There's a bunch of countries in this fight already, right? There's allies, Britain, France, Serbia, Russia. There's the central powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, and a bunch of other countries in Europe were sitting around trying to figure out who to side with if they sided with anybody at all. These guys were uncommitted. And a lot of them were purely mercenary. Like they, they were waiting to see who gave them the better deal. Like there's legitimate negotiations. The allies and the central powers are both sending delegations to Italy, Bulgaria, Romania, Greece. Like, hey, we'll give you this territory if you join the war with us. And then someone else says, we'll, we'll give you twice as much territory. And Italy might say, hmm, yeah, but you're losing. And I like those territories better. I want those territories. Those have actual Italians in them. So there's always there's some negotiation going on throughout the war to try to get these powers in. And like maybe this, maybe if Italy's army joins the war, they'll turn the tide. Maybe if Romania joins, they'll turn the tide. None of these guys turn the tide, uh, but we'll get there. So first one, Italy. Italy was supposed to be Germany and Austria-Hungary's ally. They were part of the what was called the Triple Alliance, this alliance that they'd signed way back in the 1880s, I think. So Italy's part of this alliance. But Austria-Hungary attacks Serbia, and the alliance is a defensive alliance. So Italy's like, hmm, that doesn't activate the alliance. I'm not joining this war. Good luck. Well, Italy... Well, for one thing, they looked at that. They're like, I'm not getting into that right now. But for another thing, they, um, the t- any territory that Italy might want was owned by its erstwhile ally, Austria-Hungary, which is kind of a weird ally to have because Austria-Hungary still c- contained several territories that were populated by Italians. Italy's like, I want those territories. Hmm, do I want to join this war? Do I want to join this war? And, uh, Germany tries to go over Austria-Hungary's, behind Austria-Hungary's back, like, hey, Italy, uh, I'll make Austria give you these territories and I'll compensate them somewhere else. They'll, they'll be fine if you stay, if you join the war with us and attack France. Italy's like, nah, I don't like the Austrians. I'm going to declare war on you guys. So Italy joins the Allies, declares war on the Austrians. There's the, now there's an Italian front. This is where, this is roughly located in Northeast Italy, where Italy is close to the modern day countries of Austria and Slovenia. This front is miserable, miserable. It's some of the worst fighting I've heard of in this war. It is mainly because Italy's main general, Luigi Cadorna, was mind-bogglingly stupid. Um, One of the worst military leaders, again, 
World War I keeps coming up with a lot of those. But uh, there's some particular ones. Uh, Conrad von Herzendorf in Austria-Hungary and Luigi Cadorna in Italy is just an outright smooth brain. The man, like, this this guy can't put two... <laughs> I don't even know. But, um, hey, so when you attack an enemy and you attack an enemy and you're attacking uphill in one single location, do you do something different when that attack doesn't work the first time? Or do you attack in the same place over and over and over the exact same way expecting a different result? This is the Isonzo front of the Italian front where the Italians are trying to batter their way through the Austro-Hungarians to take those Italian territories they want, that want to be, they want to unify, Viva Italia, unify the Italian territories. And they keep just bashing their heads against this brick wall because it's some of the worst terrain in the war. You can't dig trenches here because they're on solid rock. It's just, these are the Alps. These are the mountains. Uh, Italian morale is poor and gets worse. The, as they launch one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven battles of the Isonzo River, attacking uphill against a well-fortified enemy where they can't dig in on solid rock, and they are just beating boom, 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 and taking horrific, horrific, horrific casualties. But Cadorna's like, well, keep going, boys, you'll make it. They do eventually gain a little bit of ground, but it's not enough to, like, matter or justify all those casualties the italian front is miserable it's 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 like complete military incompetence but it's still going on and austria hungary now has to divert troops from other fronts to shore up the italian front it makes to be fair though italy was the only one in this war who could make austria hungary look remotely good it's a race to the bottom over here it's a it is amateur hour all right so also in 1915 Germany sends some troops down to bail Austria-Hungary out and help them attack the Serbs. Serbs have been still holding out into 1915. Austria and Germany launch this major attack, and this is where another neutral power comes in. Because just before World War I, Bulgaria had fought Serbia, and Bulgaria had lost, and they'd lost some territory. And so the allies and central powers go over to Bulgaria. Hey, Bulgaria, I can give you this territory. Hey, Bulgaria, I can give you this. Bulgaria's like, mm, I don't like the Serbs. The Serbs messed me up pretty well lately. I'm going to side with the central powers. So now we have central power number four and the last one to join the war, Bulgaria. So while the Germans and Austrians come in from the north, the Bulgarians come in from the east, there's a major, major campaign again. Serbia is overrun, hundreds of thousands of casualties. They launch this crazy fighting retreat over the, uh, the Balkan mountains through the snow and the ice, and all these civilian camp followers go with them. Thousands of them die. There's this epic trek. They reach the Adriatic Sea. They're picked up by Allied ships. The Ser- What's left of the Serbian army is nurse back to health, but Serbia is out. Uh, as, as a functioning power, their country's completely occupied. Austria-Hungary does some light genocide. And what's more important if for the central powers that now finally, with Serbia out of the way, for the first time, they are all connected. They are linked. There's, there, you can ship troops and equipment and stuff by rail from Berlin to Constantinople all the way down to Baghdad until the British take it. So, That's why they're called the Central Powers, because the Allies were gathered around them. The Central Powers were in the middle. Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, Ottoman Empire. And they are just a ring of steel trying to figure out how to break this this stalemate. Germany is heavily invested in the Western Front, fighting the Western Allies there. 
So all these fronts are now sort of merging. You can see like, but there's still there's still a Balkan front. I, I almost forgot to mention this. Um, so when Serbia is falling apart, the Allies send some units down to northern Greece to try to march in and save Serbia. They don't get there. They're stopped and driven back. And they set up around the Greek port of Salonika, which is on in northern Greece in the Aegean Sea. Thessal- it's also called Thessalonica back in the day, but it's called Salonika now. And the Allies are based at Salonika. They have a ar- large army there with trench lines around Salonika in northern Greece facing the Bulgarians and the Austro-Hungarians and the Germans. And that will be a front for the next three years. There's troops, like hundreds of thousands of troops in, in this random little place in Greece watching each other fighting, fighting major battles in 1916. And not just 1916, major battle where they try to break through and they don't succeed. But there's uh, British soldiers, French soldiers. They put the rest of the Serb army there eventually and nurse them back to health, recruit some more Serbs. So you have the Serb army in Salonika. And you also have some Russian divisions down there for a while for some reason. So there's that's the Balkan front remains a front, like I said, till the end of the war. There's always fighting going on down there. The, um, the Salonika army is often mocked. It is, there I make fun of like, there's these crazy huge battles going on at Verdun and the Somme and a Passchendaele and in Italy and the Eastern Front. And the guys at Salonika are just like, eh, quiet today. They're called the gardeners of Salonika, like mockingly. So, oh, there's Greece too. Greece did not want to be in World War I, but the, but the Allies basically forced them to when they landed in Salonika. Greece is like, hey, that's our territory. They're like, well, you're welcome to join the war. Sucks. Unless you want to fight us. And Greece is like, I guess we're part of the Allies now. And that's most of the neutrals. We, we're missing one, but we'll get to him. Okay, so that's the situation in 1916. The Western Front is still terrible and horrible. The Eastern Front is still going on. The Balkan Front is still going on. Caucasus, Mesopotamia, Egypt, Africa. Am I missing any? I feel like I'm missing one. Italian Front. Yes. Okay, there we go. So yeah, we got eight active fronts. Nine if you count the Cameroonian campaign. Ten if you count the naval campaign. Nine of which are not the Western Front, (laughs) right? So there's all this combat going outside the Western Front. So the U.S. still ain't involved in 1916. 1916 is a big year. This is the middle year of the war. Some of the worst battles. Uh, The Western Front has these crazy, bloody, terrible battles. These heart-stoppingly awful battles. For the French fighting the Germans, they have the Battle of Verdun. For the British fighting the Germans, they have the Battle of the Somme. The Somme is legendary in British history. It is emblematic of the futility of this conflict. For Verdun, that is the symbol of French courage. They shall not pass. This amazing, horrifying battle, which is like one of the, you know, four or five places, you know, time traveler. Hey, where do you want to go? Not there. Not there. Get me as far away from Verdun and the Somme as you possibly can. But what else is going on in 1916? Well, the Russians did something crazy. In 1916, the Russians launch the maybe maybe the largest battle of the of the year. Uh, this is goes along with Verdun and the Somme because the British and French are like Russia, help take some pressure off of us. The Germans are killing us over here, and Russia's like, well, we got somebody for that. This was General Brusilov. Brusilov launches this crumbling attack in 1916, and this is an attack in 
what's now Western Ukraine near the town of Lviv. I, I, I'm not probably, probably pronouncing that wrong. Lvov, Lviv. Um, but this enormous attack aimed at the Austro-Hungarian Fourth Army that just rips the heart out of the Austro-Hungarian army. Uh, this was this is an attack that shows just how far the Russians have come in the last couple years. This is where they implement modern tactics, artillery barrages, creeping barrages, uh, recon- aerial reconnaissance, all this planning. And, and again, of course, there's cavalry involved. Once the Russians achieve their breakthrough, they're followed by Cossack cavalry, which is riding down the trenches in Ukraine, s- s- just slicing up Austria, Austro-Hungarian soldiers with their swords. Brusilov gains a lot of ground. The Germans have to bail out Austria-Hungary again because Austria-Hungary's like, no, save us, Germany, save us. So Germany's like, Ugh. and they pull out troops from Verdun and the Somme where they really need troops and send them over to stop the Russians. Eventually they stop the Russians. It's an enormous, enormous battle, the Brusilov offensive. That is, um, if I ever do an Eastern Front of World War I series, which will be fun, that will be an entire episode. It's big, big, and... um. It costs Austria-Hungary like 600,000 casualties, cost the Russians a million casualties. I mean, these are like numbers I'm just throwing out there, but this is World War One. You got to get used to those numbers. Uh, but these, this might be the bloodiest battle of the entire war, bar none. Uh, the Rus- it's cost the Russians so many casualties that it, in the process of winning, it kind of breaks their army. Uh, the Austro-Hungarian army's back is completely broken. They can never launch a major operation again without German support, just because this is it. Like, if Germany hadn't bailed the Austro-Hungarians out in 1916, they would have had to surrender. The the, the war would have been over for them. So, this major battle. But what happens here, this is when the last European country of World War I really gets involved. The last major combatant. Because Russia is winning the Brusilov Offensive, and there's one country who hasn't gotten involved yet. They're sitting there, and this is Romania. Oh boy, oh boy, Romania. Romania sits and looks at Russia and like, this is this this is when we're gonna join the war, right? Because both sides have been offering, hey Romania, we can give you this territory. Romania's like, I'm gonna join the Allies. This is the perfect time to do that, right? Unfortunately, they chose the worst possible time. The worst possible time. Uh, because it seemed like Germany was hip deep in everything. They're fighting at Verdun. They're fighting at the Somme. They're fighting the Brusilov offensive. The Austrians are fighting the Italians and getting blown out, just their small intestine ripped out by the Russians in Ukraine. And the Romanians like, this is my moment to shine. Let's do it. The Romanian army, I've, I've said, the Italians were the only ones that can make the Austro-Hungarians look good. The Romanians made both of them look good. The Romanians were garbage, garbage units, uh, garbage army. Totally unmotivated, totally undisciplined. Uh, they had to pass standing orders, which you know said things like, you know, I'm going to remind you, all of you Romanian soldiers, only the officers of our army are allowed to wear makeup. None of you can wear makeup, which is maybe not your should not be your first priority. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's your culture. Go for it. Maybe you should be worried about other things like building that offensive position in the area you just attacked. See, Romania wanted Transylvania, which was controlled by Austria-Hungary which was mostly Romanian. So they tacked into it and just kind of sat there. Huh? I guess we won. I guess we took it. We won. Uh, they did not win. Germany, every every one of the central powers just dogpiled onto Romania. Like, well, if you look at a map, if you look at Romania in a map in 1916, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? They surround you. What were you thinking? And it's just, 
Like, Romania is just thrown to the ground and stomped on. Like, very few countries in this war. Any of them. Like, they're like, hey guys, we joined the war. Punch, right in the face. And they're down. Uh, the, the Germans invade from the north. The, the Germans, Austrians invade from the north. Germans, Austrians, Bulgarians, and Ottomans invade from the south. And they just crush Romania between them like a nutcracker. It's not even funny. It's embarrassing. I'm not saying, saying it's embarrassing. It's mortifying. It's amazing. The Romanian campaign of 1916. Bloody campaign, as they all are. But still a major campaign. And... It actually hurts the Allies more than it helped them. Jo- Romania joining the Allies actually hurt them because now Germany is able to open up a new front against the Russians where the Romanian border used to be. <laughs> and there's another major battlefront again. The Balkans is always fighting. All right. That's, that's a lot of fronts, right? There's a lot going on here. Again, this is a reconnaissance. I haven't talked about World War the front, the Western Front much at all. Because I wanted to show how all this other stuff was happening. Right? So how did all these fronts end? Well, Romania is out. Like, they have an army. What's left of their army retreats into Russia. But they're out. Uh, Fun trivia fact. Romania was the only allied country to be dogpiled by all four central powers. Germany, Austria, Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire. Even Bulgaria is like, hey guys, this looks fun. I'm sending some troops. So yeah, it not good. Not good for the Romanians. So now we're in 1917. Romania's out of the war. Serbia's pretty much out of the war. There's still a major battle going on in the Western Front. That is always going on. And Russia is looking increasingly shaky. In February 1917, Russia has its first revolution where the Tsar is overthrown and a democratic government is proclaimed. Their army starts getting really shaky. Uh, They're not doing so hot. In June... 1917, they try to launch this major offensive to try to do the same thing they did last year. The soldiers mutiny. They don't want to go forward. They're, they are, their offensive fails after taking a couple more bites out of the Austro-Hungarian army, which is, you know, cannot afford to have many more bites taken out of it. And Germany's like, hmm, hmm, maybe Russia's about to fall apart. So they, uh, you know, at, at some point before this, they grabbed a guy named, some dude named Vladimir Lenin. They knew that the revolution was going on. There was some chaos going on over there. And Germany literally takes Lenin, who was in exile in Switzerland, like, hey, Lenin, hey, we'll we'll, we'll ship you back to Russia if you promise to take Russia out of the war against us. And Lenin's like, say no more, fam, let's go. So they ship Lenin over Germany on this this train with the windows blacked out, put him on a boat and drop him off in Russia. Have fun, Lenin. Make some trouble for us. Um, this is what, we, you know, this is the part where we call foreshadowing. Because Lenin will eventually found the Soviet Union. You know how it goes. So Russia's in the middle of revolution. There are armies on the verge of collapse. But Germany can only do so much. Like, attacking into Russia will only accomplish so much right now. They need to take pressure off Austria-Hungary. Again, Austria-Hungary says, help! They're fighting the Italians. And the Italians are making a little bit of ground. So Germany sends... All right, all right, Austria-Hungary. This is the last time I'm bailing you out. Austria-Hungary is like, you'll be back. Germany's like, I know I'll be back, but I can't keep bailing you out. But they can, and they have to, because Austria-Hungary is their only ally in Europe. So Germany sends some troops down to join the Austrians and try to take Italy out of the war this time. We like, we took Serbia out, 1915. 
We took Romania out, 1916. Russia might be out, 1917. Maybe if we take Italy out, we can concentrate all our power on the Western Front and defeat the British and French once and for all. So they send some troops down to to Italy. Like I've said, Austria-Hungary cannot launch a successful attack anymore without German help. So they launch this battle. This is the 12th Battle of the Isonzo. Uh, there's a lot of these. Um, but the Germans penetrate and just overwhelm the Italian lines. There's a there's a mount, troop, battalion of mountain troops here. Uh, one of its officers is Captain Erwin Rommel. And he exaggerates his own role in the battle in his book. But so, like it just shows that the Italians are just surrendering. They are done. After 11 battles of bashing their head against a brick wall and seeing... Thousands of casualties. They're not having it. They, they surrender en masse. It is a disaster for Italy. And in a nice little reversal, Britain and France have to send troops down to bail Italy out. Everybody's trying to keep their allies in the war because too many allies collapsing means they're going to lose. So Germany's, you know, Germany's like, okay, well, mess the Italians up pretty good. But they didn't knock them out. They were the Italians recovered, gained their strength. Italian front continues. The gardeners of Salonica are still down in Greece. They continue. The Eastern Front is still alive. What else is going on in 1917? Don't forget, there's the fighting in Palestine. There's the fighting in Mesopotamia. The British capture Baghdad. Uh, the British capture Jerusalem. There's fighting in the Caucasus. There's again everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Last really big thing that happens in 1917 is the October Revolution, where Lenin takes power in the, in Russia and decides to negotiate a peace with the Germans. Whole big mess happens over there, and despite the fact that peace is technically negotiated, Germany sends a bunch of troops in to try to occupy the territory they think they've conquered, which includes Ukraine, Belarus, all these places. And so Germany is still fighting inside this territory well into 1918 and beyond in some places. Um, there's a long, there's still campaigns going on. The Ottomans take advantage of the Russian collapse to try to send troops to occupy the Caucasus. None of these fronts don't close down, they just change. Now the Russian Civil War is breaking out, that's descending into chaos. These are still fronts going on of World War I. They didn't go away just because somebody got knocked out. They just changed. So 1918, big year, the final year of the war, and all the fronts are still active. And the problem is the central powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and Ottoman Empire, they cannot hold all these fronts. Something's going to give. Ottoman Empire is already starting to give. Austria-Hungary is clearly about to die. Bulgaria is like, you guys are, are you guys all right? <laughs> Bulgaria, Germany is trying to hold this all together. Germany's like, I'm carrying all of you. I'm supporting all of you. Germany actually had a really big problem in this war. They were, they did not trust their allies. They did not help their allies enough. They treated them like they were basically losers. I mean, maybe, but you don't have to say that. <laughs> um, the, they clearly held the Austrians in contempt, the Ottomans in contempt. The Ottomans deserved that less than the Austrians. But there are these, 1918 is mostly a bunch of big battles on the Western Front where the Americans start arriving, beefing up allied numbers. Germany launches a major attack to try to win the war. It doesn't work, and they start being driven back in these insanely huge battles western front it's always happening but all the attention in the histories gets sucked over to the western front i keep saying this but collapse was happening everywhere else too in september the gardeners of salonica the guys who were sitting down in greece stopped gardening they attack and overwhelm the bulgarian army they start marching north back into serbia 
Bulgaria is the first of the Central Powers to be knocked out in this major battle no one ever talks about. And by 1918, by the end of the war, the Serbian army, of all people, has recaptured Belgrade, where this all began so long ago. So long ago, and it's coming back. And the Ottomans are collapsing. This is when Allenby launches his attack in Syria at the Battle of Armageddon. And the Arabs are coming up through, the, through Arabia, and the... All this stuff is happening. The Ottomans are out. By the time that Alamee captures Damascus, Ottomans are suing for peace, and now they're out of the war. Italians. The Italians get their crap together, and they launch a major counteroffensive in October 1918, and they drive the Austrians back. Austrian army finally just, we're done. This is, this is too much. We're, it is over. It is over. The war's over. We didn't really want to be part of this empire anyway. Nobody did. And You know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire is collapsing around their ears, even while they're trying to negotiate the peace treaty. There's not going to be a peace treaty. With who? The empire had fallen apart. Like, the thing they had tried, went to war to try to prevent, had ended up happening. Same thing. The Ottoman Empire fell apart. The thing they went to war to try to prevent had happened. Bulgaria is just, well, I lost a little bit of territory. I'm Bulgaria. What what are you looking at me like that for? I'm, I'm not that... Come on, guys. I'm not that. I'm not one of these big guys. I'm not one of these empires. The Russian Empire, which had already fallen apart from the Civil War and Revolution, which had gone to war to try to preserve their empire, was falling apart. <laughs> so now there's Germany. Germany trying to hold everything together. All its allies are gone, and this was the really the collapse of their allies was the thing that really caused began to cause the German defeat. They were losing on the Western Front. That much is clear. They were being driven back on the Western Front. But all these other fronts that nobody pays attention to, including the history books, these other fronts were part of the decisive combination of pressure that squeezed the central powers until they started snapping one after another. The Germans collapsed because all these other fronts collapsed. With When Bulgaria, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottomans all collapse, that means there's millions of Allied troops now free to march north right into Germany if they want to. The only reason they're not is because of logistics. Give it another couple months and they'll be ready to march north. Germany's done. And so that's when the war really ends. Then uh, when the Allies are driving them back on the Western Front, which was always the major theater for Germany. But when everybody else falls apart, when this whole structure just kind of collapses like a house of cards, Germany's done and is forced to sign the armistice. So... Only when all their allies were knocked out did Germany really fall in World War I. Bulgaria, of all people, was the tipping point. <laughs> like, Bulgaria is the moment when the allies, real, when the central powers realize, when Germany realizes that, oh, oh no, this is, this is not looking good. Like, because Bulgaria severs that connection they had that made them the central powers in the first place. When that's gone, Germany starts to fold in on itself and collapse. And that's what causes, in the, really in the end, end of World War I. All these empires went to war to try to save their empires from the threats they saw, and all of them collapsed. Austria-Hungary falls apart into a dozen nations. The Ottoman Empire falls apart into Turkey and all the Arab countries. Russia, still TBD. <laughs> still TBD as I record this. Germany, of course, we know what happens there. But if you look at it this way, too, look at this in world context. Because we still see the war as the Western Front. 
The Western Front is this war of futility. And we've seen just in a general overview how all these other fronts were behaving so much differently. The fighting was different. The context was different. The people fighting each other were different. The motivations were different. And World War I is usually seen as this great tragedy that accomplished nothing. Tell that, even on the Western Front, tell that to the liberated Belgians or the liberated people of northern France. They thought it was worth something. Tell it to all the countries like Poland, Czechoslovakia, then Czech and Slovakia, or Hungary, or Croatia, or Yugoslavia, who have National Independence Days on the day that World War I ended. Yeah, they had to go through the whole process after the armistice, but that didn't mean it was worth nothing. That brought Poland came back to life after 100 plus years of being split up and part of several empires. So the end of World War I on all these other fronts was the collapse of four empires and the rebirth or rebirth of multiple nations. Romanians were reunited with the Romanian mother country. Serbia created a large kingdom called Yugoslavia. Serbia came out of the war pretty darn good for having started it, getting the first, being the first country to be knocked out. Serbia lost almost 25% of their pre-war population during World War One. A staggering figure that has that was not repeated by any other country, not equal by any other country in either world war. But, you know, France loses like 3%. Uh, Germany loses like, I think, 3 to 4%. And these countries were traumatized by the war. Serbia loses 24%. They're like, yeah, we won. Suck it, Austria-Hungary. You don't exist anymore. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so for these people, for the, you know, all these people... World War I was not a meaningless war. It was not futile. For many of these countries, it was the liberation moment. And even in the Western Front, and even all these wars, lots of people felt like their war service had accomplished something, to a degree that we forget, to a degree that later memory of World War I sees it as just this futile, just miserable, bloody, muddy disgrace the, the absolute epitome of anti-war sentiment. The idea that war is always foolish and stupid and it never accomplishes anything. But that's not how a lot of people on every side felt when the war actually ended. A lot of British, a lot of French soldiers. The British soldiers remembered this as a, you know, that was a great victory for civilization is what they thought of it as. They went home and they felt like, a lot of them felt like they'd done Something good. They'd done their part, and it had been worth it. Even if they, many people didn't make it home, they felt like it had been worth it. Not everybody, but a lot of people. The French, they had defended their nation from the German, from the Hun. A lot of them felt like that was worth it. A lot of the Germans never admitted that they had lost. They felt like their service had been worth it. They had been fighting for the idea of a greater Germany or whatever meaning they found in it. They found meaning. A lot of the Russians didn't, but a lot of the Russian, a couple of the Russians did. A couple of Russians believe they've been fighting against, you know, the forces of the West trying to overwhelm them. The Serbs, the Ottomans who fought for Turkey, the Italians who fought to liberate oppressed Italian people in their minds. A lot of these people did not see World War I the way we see it today. A lot of that is the product of later memory future memory of All Quiet on the Western Front, the famous novel later movie, of uh, British comedy shows or British uh, plays or, or all these poems and skits. All this stuff was not necessarily representative of how people felt at the time. That's 
really the forgotten front of World War I was the memory. The memory is different than what we perceive it as. We in the 21st century aren't those people in 1918 having won, having survived, having peace for the first time in four years. We can't put ourselves in their shoes. They felt differently than we might expect them to, than we might think was appropriate. One German soldier, Ernst Jünger, became very famous for his novel Storm of Steel, where he posited the strange idea that I got something positive out of World War I. I felt like it was an improving experience. We were forged. We were hardened into this steel. A lot of people felt that way. Like, maybe it wasn't the great noble crusade we thought it was, but that doesn't mean it was meaningless. That doesn't mean it didn't mean something to all these people on all these unknown fronts of World War I. These enormous conflicts that just get lost as long as we narrow down to the Western Front. We narrow down to this one part of a global war, a real world war, a great war. The trench warfare was important. It sticks in the memory. It sticks in the head. It's in all the movies and all the portrayals of the war. But there was so much to this conflict. I could do, like I said, I could do Unknown Soldiers of World War I, and I would have never run out of material. I didn't even go into um, a lot of the soldiers that served from the Western Front, the Aussies, the New Zealanders, the Canadians. Canadians were amazing in this war. I'm running out of time. That's why I didn't get to them. Uh, the Portuguese, huh? the Portuguese, the Portuguese put two divisions on the Western Front that had a bad time, but they, the Portuguese had troops on the Western Front. Crazy, right? But... My point is, there's so many dimensions to this war that go beyond the British versus German in the trenches of Flanders. Overwhelming mindset that comes with World War I. So when we say World War I, your only image shouldn't be trench warfare. It should be cavalry thundering across the desert of Arabia, uh, mountain fighting in Italy, Romania, or Serbia, vast open field battles with large lines of infantry in Poland or Ukraine, or in the Caucasus, or even jungle fighting in Cameroon, or fighting on the savannah in Tanzania, or even fighting in a Chinese city at Tsingdao. This war had many dimensions. Many people were involved. So next time you think of World War I, if you try to picture what it looked like in your head for whatever reason, I encourage you to look beyond the Western Front. Thanks a bunch for listening today. As always, I hope you learned a lot today. I enjoyed talking about it. I, I really I really think I got a lot out there. This I could have made this a lot longer to explain things a little bit more, but hopefully it was enough of an overview, not too deep, but not too shallow. And I hope you guys really enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you've heard today, please tell your friends about it. If you haven't, t- if you didn't, tell your enemies. Uh, don't get in an alliance with people who are going to probably lose the war. That's bad for you. And if you want to know more about World War I, I've written a lot about many of these fronts. It's on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, help me buy another book about World War I. God knows I don't talk about it enough. I have a donate button there as well. You can also email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod. Just send me a line. Drop me a message. What do you want the next Unfiltered Soldiers to be about? Can't promise I'll do it. I'll probably do a poll again next time because this one seems to work pretty well. Thanks again for listening as always. See you same place, same time next week because we're going to the Crimea only here on Unknown Soldiers.